Sorry. What's what's our plan for today? Like what's the? You, you just answer questions. Okay. Yeah, All right. Yeah. I yeah. used to. We'll, we'll ask you what so you're doing. So we'll get through. We got an hour and a half. So we'll get through three questions. Yeah. Okay? That's, and they are. <laughs> what are you? I just thought nice. I'd beat you. I just thought I'd beat you to the punch. Deprecating there. humor. I like it. <laughs> this is gonna go well. <laughs> I'm feeling very optimistic. Uh, okay, so the I think the, the burning question that most people have uh, or want to hear about what you're up to is what are you up to these days now that you're not our uh, worship? <laughs> well, you know, uh, the sad thing about having the title your worship is that it turns out after eight years, I can confirm nobody worships you. So so certainly I've I've recovered, I think now it took me more than a year to just regroup after 14 years at City Hall, eight years as mayor, Two, you know, two years of pandemic, five years as chair of Canada's big city mayors, um, you know, five premiers in, in eight years while I was mayor. Uh, and, and so it took, a, it took a while, but I'm, I'm really fortunate that I've landed with um, some contract work that's really meaningful to me in the climate space. So I work three days a week with Cooperators Insurance and their investment arm called Addenda Capital. And with a whole bunch of other folks, like the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, who I worked with for a long time, was on their board. Uh, other institutional investors, you know, Infrastructure Canada, uh, ICLE Local Governments for Sustainability, Partners for Action at Waterloo, like this whole coalition of people who are interested in dealing with the impacts of climate change on communities in our country. The same way, or kind of what got me the gig, was an extension of some of the work that I was involved in when I chaired the utility committee many years ago on council dealing with flooding issues initially in the Southwest that became the citywide flood mitigation strategy that eventually became EPCOR's stormwater integrated resource plan, which is all, I mean, those are all just jargony words for it's raining more and our infrastructure was undersized to begin with. So with climate change and more severe weather events, we need to make adjustments to our infrastructure to be more resilient. Uh, and to adapt to a changing climate. So that work got noticed. You know, to I was- To the benefit of the insurance companies as well, right? They're, so they're legitimately yes. interested partners. Yes, because um, measures undertaken by municipalities or utility companies or, um, you know, watershed management or conservation authorities that materially reduce risk and reduce loss um, benefit insurance companies. Um, now, a lot of insurance companies don't even offer water coverage anymore, cooperators and as exception. I don't mean to turn this into a, a commercial for the place that I work, but but what's the reason why they do that, and this is to purpose and values alignment, is that um, they saw a giant unmet need for people to get support in this country uh, to vulnerability to these worsening climate perils because of their deep commitments to sustainability and to resilience, which go back to their roots being formed, you know, outside of Guelph and outside of Regina uh, by farmers, you know, 75 years ago who formed a two separate cooperatives to support their own insurance needs because the big insurance companies in the cities were not interested in underwriting farm insurance and life insurance for farmers at the time. So, so cooperators, and it's in the name, is a co-op. It's community owned, um, you know, directly by 46 different credit unions and cooperatives like UFA and Federated Co-op and Service Credit Union through the Alberta Co-ops or it's a Credit Unions Network owns a piece of it. So I didn't know, but as, you know, as a credit union uh, member, I've owned a piece of the place I now work for 40 years since I was a kid. And so those community ownership models, I think are really interesting and relevant because it operates, it is a business, but its stakeholders and its shareholders and its owners and the people who it's accountable to are community. And that feels very familiar to me to, you know, how I approached, you know, my accountabilities as, as an elected official in this community. So I'm still serving not just a million customers and the owners of this, uh, of this cooperative, but through that platform, I'm given the opportunity to try to make a difference to how this country adapts to the challenge of climate change, which was a priority for me while I was mayor. 
And it's something I get to continue to work on three days a week as a sort of financial and public policy innovation exercise that ultimately, you know, insurers want to make investments in and build products around to support Canadians' resilience. And on an inclusive basis, by the way, we do a lot of work to make sure that from a and poverty Edmonton standpoint uh, that that folks are not left behind because it'd be very easy to tilt models like I've just sort of very high level described uh, to be supportive to people who own their home and who have deep pockets and who can afford insurance or can even obtain insurance and that renters and other people in precarious housing situations without a lot of financial resilience would be the last to get helped in a system that's that's being driven by, you know, heavy price signals and valuation shifts. Um, so we're trying to unlock the power of the market to come in and support uh, uh, adaptation and resilience in Canada, but in a way that leaves no one behind. Mm-hmm. And so the values alignment is, um, I really do, I have to pinch myself sometimes, the people I get to work with, the caliber of the organization, its credibility in in Ottawa and in investment circles, like, it's a really an extraordinary organization I've, I've come to be a part of for the last year and a half. And then I do eight other things ranging from some work at the University of Toronto School of Cities uh, on regionalism and regional governance. Um, I chair the board of the Canadian Lion Stand Homelessness because uh, I'm still very passionate about that unfinished bit of business from my time at City Hall. Uh, and I'm involved in some uh, clean tech projects, uh, some social innovation technology projects, and... Um, some housing uh, technology innovation projects as well, some of which are NGOs, some of which are private businesses and startups that I'm working with or invested in in some cases. And so it's quite a portfolio of stuff that turns my crank because it's, you know, housing or climate or in one case, uh, you know, economic reconciliation or in two cases, actually economic reconciliation focused. So so all the same stuff I was working on as mayor, just without the endless meetings. It's great. That that was actually the follow-up question is exactly that. So you don't have to get seven people to vote with you. You don't have to convince an administration bureaucracy to do something. Like, do you, of all these eight other things you're doing, is there one, like, really big idea that you're really excited about? Well, there's a bunch of them. I mean, there are some housing projects I'm working on. So, I mean, I, I get to work on climate stuff, which is super interesting to me. I get to work on housing stuff, which is super interesting to me. And one project that... Uh, that, that isn't ready to be announced yet um, is at the intersection of those two things. So really taking up the challenge of we have to deliver all this, this housing supply. You know, we all know we're short on supply. How do we do it in a way that doesn't undermine our emissions reduction goals? And how do we do it in a way that makes sure that, you know, this housing isn't uh, going to be washed out to sea or burned down or soggy because it's flooded all the time because it was put in a stupid location or was put in a location without a defense around it to make it safe for the long term mm-hmm. to protect that investment. So really harmonizing the climate objectives and the housing objectives while also trying to split the arrow again and make sure that some of this housing supply that gets built is actually affordable for the people who need it the most. Because, you know, 5.8 million more houses that are all in the suburbs that you need two cars to get to that you can only afford if you've got two incomes in the household rebalances, you know, the upper middle class's housing market, but doesn't solve workforce housing issues, which are chronic problems in all of our cities and definitely does nothing to support the you know, growing shortage of housing for um, for folks uh, in the most need of our support in 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 this country. So it's, it's so the the neatest project I think is the one that brings together the different aspects of my portfolio and where I can bridge, you know, housing advocacy folks and climate folks um, to be. And, and you you'd, at first you'd think it's harder if you're trying to solve for both things, but once you're all once you're there. You can't not do it. It's like you can't not justify an end poverty position. Like you, you, we, we have to build this housing. We have to achieve these climate goals. These are like two of the great challenges of our time. And there's lots of people saying, well, well let's build this housing, but you know, let's not worry about the emission stuff because we're in a housing crisis. And then there's climate folks saying, you know what? We can't even build that housing because it's going to throw us off into overshoot. And the sweet spot is like, we have to do both. And once you have an imperative like that and a constraint around it, it unlocks a whole bunch of creativity, not to do, you know, science fiction, but to do things that people thought were just off the table before. So it opens up public policy and regulatory reform. It opens up different financial models. And so it's a time of incredible creativity because it's a time of incredible, you know, 
multiple simultaneous crises demanding significant significant change and and thought leadership and I, I get to be a part a little bit of integrating thought leadership across a couple of these disciplines and that was the part I loved about is being mayor was like being at the center of things that were complicated at the community scale and occasionally at the national scale with my work with FCM and trying to actually find solutions within that so I, st I still get to do that and uh, and and I mean, I still have to deal with constraints and complexity and, and working, you know, it, it's a different environment. No job is, is perfect. Um, like trying to manage my schedule across these nine different commitments without a full-time scheduler, which I had, and shout out to, to Janice, by the way, she was delightful <laughs> to work with for eight years and I really miss her. So yeah, it's not all smiles and sunshine. Um, I'm getting better at juggling my schedule, but, uh, but so there's always trade-offs, um, but I, I, you know, I, I explained to somebody it this way, like being mayor's 80% what you have to do and 20% your own priorities, maybe at the best of times. Now it's like 80% what I want to do. And like 20%, I still have to answer emails and juggle my schedule and, and, um, you know, file my GST returns. Right. So, so the proportions inverted, which is, you know, which is delightful. So I wanted to ask, uh, cause we served together. And I saw uh, the ups and downs that you went through. The strain, I know the strain of that role. Mm. Um, are you, uh, and you're, you're tackling some huge issues. Are you hopeful? Oh, you have to be, but it's hard. Especially, it is hard, it is a hard time to maintain that um, because it does seem like there's so many headwinds right now. Um, but I, again, I think that that has to unlock action. If it becomes um, admiring the problem or 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 anxiety and paralysis and and you know analysis to paralysis, then that's and and I I can go there. I can definitely yep. definitely wind up there. You've seen it. Uh, um, well, we all can. Well, yep. we all we all can. Yep. And it is a it is a hard time. It's a, it's a hard time. People are struggling. There are you know cleavages, divisions in in our society that are being that are being wedged open by forces we don't even understand around you know algorithms and the way people communicate differently. And, and then some of that's been exploited. I, I thought, you know, what Aaron O'Toole had to say when he left parliament was important for every person trying to do politics in this country to listen to. Summarize I, that. Well, he, he said, um, you know, parliaments kind of turned into a content generation exercise for, for clips. Um, and that it, if the politics of this, of this country is kind of reduced to slogans and point scoring and kind of owning owning the opposition or owning owning the government or just dunking on each other and also de descends even further into you know personal attacks and gossip and and um, and nastiness which which it has um, then you know that that bodes that does not bode well for the institutions we need more than ever to be tackling complex problems around equity and inclusion and justice and environmental stewardship, climate action, um, economic productivity, economic diversification, competitiveness with the United States and the rest of the world. Like serious issues for serious people that institutions like our government's we're never perfect at doing, but at least there was kind of a floor underneath how how silly they could get. I wonder about that sometimes. Like I do. Like, was the Deepen Baker era or the Pierre Elliott Trudeau era devoid of this? No, they were sniping and attacking. Um, the public maybe was a little more um, didn't get involved in it as much because now they have social media to repeat those clips and attack and uh, et cetera. But, uh, but again, I don't know. I think most, I, I, some, the point I try to make is I think most people are still reasonable. The people, the people are the, the um, intermediation and Paul Wells has been writing about this recently on his Substack. is that, that, that there, and there used to be 
mediative um, forces uh, or or actors like Walter Cronkite was like a reference source of truth in the United States. Um, you know, the papers of record in any given city or nationally were, even if people debated, like at least the facts were not in dispute, right? right. So it was common frames of reference that mediated um, sentiments across otherwise reasonable people. Um, one of the pieces he described, and he's, he's citing an, another uh, theorist on this, is this issue of disintermediation, which is a $10 word for saying like people just don't talk anymore and don't have the same reference facts, and there are no authoritative sources. So the, the problem you were describing a minute ago about uh, you know, the difference between the Diefenbaker era and today is one of institutional credibility. So was, were, was any federal government ever perfect anywhere? No. I mean, all institutions are flawed because institutions are created by humans and humans are flawed. Expecting the institutions to be perfect is to set yourself up for failure, right? Or, or surprise. Um, the question is like, are they, are they capable of growing from, learning from, is there accountability are there mechanisms in place that maintain trust in those institutions despite the fact that they're inherently flawed and they're going to make mistakes? Um, and I think historically we kind of had that and then now we don't, right? And, and, so, and the, same with media, you know, yeah. same. And so, so all of these institutions, including how we even mediate the truth, mm -hmm. are now disintermediated and now lack widespread institutional credibility. So there's no coherent, you know, town square and it sure isn't Twitter. I'm sorry, Mr. Musk. Like there's no town square to yeah. actually have any kind of fact-based conversation that includes a disagreement on values. Like if you can't even have a fact-based conversation then, and if the values are, are, are being torqued and if you've got, you know, bubbling and I mean, this is, this is one of the great, challenges of our time is that we no longer have like a coherent polis. Um, and, but the one place I think where you're still more likely to find it is at the local level, uh, in communities at municipal, uh, or regional tables where there's, uh, a sense of, you know, kinship or neighborliness or common interest that's place-based. And so I think we need our local institutions more than ever. Um, but the faltering of our, of our, you know, provincial and national and international institutions um, is, is a serious threat to and media and that, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. no. Uh, so, so like, do I have hope in, in spite <laughs> of all of what I've just laid out about how messed up everything is? Yeah. Because I still believe people are amazing in their own right. And every time I've seen people get together for common purpose and common action at whatever scale, as, and especially where there isn't perfect alignment on values, where there's some tension around what's the best way to do this. We all agree on this outcome, like ending homelessness or ending poverty or uh, stopping climate change before it, the planet shakes us off its back. But then there's a healthy discussion about what's the best way to do it, recognizing you're, you're not going to try one thing for 30 years and get it done. You're going to have to course correct. You know, there's going to be a debate about recovery versus harm reduction when the answer is probably both, right? right? And housing versus, you know, offsite treatment when the answer is uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Like healthy debate is, is the way we get through complex problems like that. And we're still capable of that. It's just harder. That's that. So good for you for saying that because like it, I wasn't finding a lot of reasons to be hopeful, uh, and I do think like I do think we look we have traditionally looked to like the media or our national leaders for hope and reasons to be optimistic or inspiration, and and if we can't do that, where do you find it? Like if you can expand on what local means to you and how you find hope in the local. Well, it's 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 two things. It's it's I mean, there's a kind of spiritual is too um, abstract a word for it, but there's, there's, you know, you either have faith in people or not, you know, flawed as they are or not. And I think there's a tremendous erosion right now in faith in, in common humanity. Right. And it, I just got through reading a phenomenal book about this um, by Rutger Brookman called Humankind, where he, basically says, you know, the great historical debate has been between schools of thought that say people are fundamentally good 
or people are fundamentally bad. And, you know, it's an oversimplification because we're both, right? Like we're all capable of mistakes under duress and, and you know, nobody, nobody is perfect. Um, and then paradoxically, people who do really, really, you know, who, who are in very difficult situations who we might have a lot of compassion for or make allowances for because of their history of trauma and other things are capable of extraordinary acts of kindness, right? And so you never know what you're going to get. But over time, like what's your assumption? Is it that most of the time people are good? I mean, society would crumble if that wasn't the case, right? Yeah. I think like, yeah. like laws enforce themselves because people agree that they kind of make sense. Even if they hate the speed limit, they're still not going to do 150. And it's not just because of this. It's not just because of it's unsafe. It's also because everyone else is doing, you know, 110 or 120 and kind of there's a self-reinforcing social phenomenon there. And on some level, most people understand that reckless behavior is, um, is bad for community, right? And, and then community also sanctions that, whether it's with a speeding ticket or historically in cultures, how people have dealt with, with outliers and bad behavior. Uh, the cash with, grab. Well, with, with restorative <laughs> justice practices and other things yeah. like that. So I feel like if you look at the history of yeah. humanity, we wouldn't be where we are if we weren't pretty decent, pretty kind, pretty understanding in spite of our fallibility. So he makes a really strong case that that's actually humanity. But that is not the narrative of our time. Right, and that's not the narrative of crime and punishment. That's not, and that, and then and and the, a fear-based public political narrative relies on uh, stoking your assumption that the person in your back lane is a threat, or the person who votes differently than you is a threat, or the newcomer is a threat, or the person who looks different than you is a threat. And even if it's just dog whistle subtle, or even if it's right in your face, which seems to be de rigueur now. Um, you know, that, that narrative is, is, is a winning narrative in the short term, but it's, you know, I, I think you see the, you can't help but serve for 14 years at city hall and see the antidote of it all the time when people come out who care about their community. And again, even if you disagree on values, even if you disagree on outcomes, people are showing up because they care. And even if they're incredibly angry, it's because they care about the place where they call home. And, and it's not the initial reactivity. It's when people settle down into some kind of facilitated good conversation about, um, okay, okay, yeah, I hear that you're scared. I hear that you're upset. I right. hear your anxiety. Right. A lot of us share that too. Now, what are we going to do about it? And that becomes an action-focused conversation instead of a paralysis by analysis, reactive stuck exercise. And I think metapolitics is kind of stuck in that at the, at the federal and provincial level a lot of times. But I think it, it, if it breaks loose anywhere, it breaks loose in community and not always at city hall, but like at the business improvement association level or on a well-functioning condo board or, you know, like you can find community um, at a lot of different altitudes with the people you have to share physical space with, right? So I, I still think, and, and um, Robert Putnam, the, the author of, um, of Bowling Alone from a few years ago, talked about the erosion of social cohesion in America in the last century. And he's just written a, another book um, whose name I forget. Anyway, his, his new book talks about how, how America's been there before and the world's been there before 100 years ago. And what, what brought America out of its egotistical divided... Um, nutty period in the roaring 20s was collective action. And that one example he gives that I'll never forget is that like we just imagine high schools have existed forever. But high schools um, only became sort of ubiquitous in the United States when communities started building them because they wanted their kids to be able to deal with the then threat of mechanization by upskilling them to do more than low-skilled labor. And that every community that had one of those would equip its kids to be more successful in a changing economy. And then eventually every community had to do it. And that's not because the federal government said, we're going to have high schools, you know, $10 a day high schools for everybody. And here's how you have to roll them out. It was bottom up initiative and mm -hmm. gives lots of other examples of how, you know, the, the, the greatness of any country is really built from the bottom up by that kind of collective action. And that is what we need to deal with climate. That is what we need to deal with housing and homelessness. I mean, we need, you know, federal incentives and programs and alignment to power a lot of it. But 
but um, and resource it. But the connective tissue where um, consensus can be built about what to do is going to, it has to come from the bottom up because mm-hmm. the solution in Edmonton is going to be different than the solution in St. John's and going to be different than the solution in, in Montreal. And that, that would be part of the theory of change at the Canadian Alliance and homelessness is there's a program um, for how to do it, but implementing it is going to be done by different actors with different priorities and different histories in response to different demographics, different needs, different histories and different pressures in, in different communities. So you, so, so top-down alignment on big picture objectives like climate, but then bottom-up implementation for how to get there at the, at the community level. So, I, I, yeah, I was just reading some material on that proposed act in Alberta to be able to um, basically order somebody into treatment. And I've thought a lot about this, and I've written about homelessness. Um, and, you know, I dealt with it <clears throat> for eight years when I was on council. And you just said, um, you can't have one size fits all solution. And so I don't know, there may be people for whom if you don't get them off the street, maybe it's 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, I don't know. If you don't get them off the street and into some form of mental health and addictions treatment, they're going to die in the next year. They're just going to die. So it seems to me that that might be the most e- extreme option we take, but it might have be a pl- it might have a place. I'm not convinced, but I'm thinking about that. That we may have to, in some cases, go that far, uh, because that seems to be what in in the in Alberta what the province wants to do. So the book is called The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. So that's a source of hope is this book. Thank now, you. one of Thank the most you. hopeless conversations <laughs> <Yeah>. that's, <laughs> that abounds is, is the one that you've just raised, which is like how to effectively support um, people whose oppression and distress, from my perspective, mm-hmm. has gotten to the point where they're self-medicating in the street. And so I, I see that as a justice issue and and as a public health issue yeah. um, more than I see it as a crime and disorder issue. I understand there's different perspectives on it. Yeah. Um, I think one's compassionate and one's fear-based, frankly. So, but, but I have compassion for the people who feel fear around what's happening in front of their business or out behind their home or at their kid's playground. Like, it's bad. It is really, really bad. Um, but it's also really tempting to try to uh, personalize and individualize the, the, the narrative for why this yep. is not just one person doing this, but why this is a rising phenomenon in our society. And if you start from the premise that is the failing of that individual, then you take a individualized approach to the program for dealing with that individual who is struggling, which starts to look like um, you know, detention models and, and routing through systems models. And um, when I still think this is a systemic issue that arises from, from widening income inequality, housing scarcity and shortfall at, at the acute need that's supporting homelessness, uh, that's the sort of income, economic and housing piece of it, which are major determinants of, of, of outcomes for people's health. Then there's, you know, um, the alienation and and challenge of intergenerational trauma or unmet mental health challenges, um, and that's that can also be individualized. Except that that is so widespread and getting worse that that is not. It's not that like twice as many people are personally failing because all of a sudden twice as many people are, um, you know, have fallen off the side of something, it's that our society is very, very unhealthy right now. And Gabor Mate has been writing about this. His latest book is clearer and clearer. So I'm getting to read more. This is nice. What I want to read instead of council reports. But his, <laughs> his, most, his most recent book about essentially what ails our society um, and what the contributing factors are to the ill health of all of us in terms of you know, how we're eating, how people are being medicated, um, the amount of time we're spending on our devices, um, you know, and the, the general state of mental health. I mean, those are inputs to why more people are in distress. And yeah. then that is 
a precondition for more people, you know, using to, to, to solve that distress. So, I mean, of course, moving upstream systemically into addressing income inequality, supporting people more effectively with mental health, supporting people's physical health better so that their mental health is better. Like all that's hard. It's hard to win an election saying we should have a healthier society, except like I would vote for that in a minute because that's the actual long-term answer, but it's also intergenerational work. Yeah. And it, this is all the theory of change of, of, of end poverty Edmonton. So I, and I learned a ton through that process and I, I'm still very, very bought into the, all of the theory of change behind it um, because I don't think you heal communities or you, I don't think you heal individuals by forcing them into healing. I think you heal individuals by healing communities and addressing their whole needs. And I think the most persuasive example of this that I've heard was was at a conference where uh, 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 Carola Cunningham from Edmonton and an uh, Indigenous um, housing and addictions uh, um, leader and knowledge keeper from Victoria were on a, on a, in a talking circle together talking about it's not harm reduction versus supportive housing or treatment versus abstinence or like any kind of black and white or dualistic or way of, of looking at this as a very Western colonial settler mindset in these things. And she said, you're getting the lousy results because you're not thinking about it properly, right? And so to, 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 at the risk of, I'm not appropriating, but honoring a traditional knowledge of, of, Indigenous Canadians represented by these two extraordinary um, women who do this work every day, you know, they said, essentially, it's the medicine wheel, right? Like you have to look to the, the physical and mental and spiritual and community, you know, collective health, the family and, and community context health, if you want someone to actually heal, right? And so if we're talking about anything less than healing individuals, and healing communities to support the, you know, that's what real recovery and healing mm -hmm. would look like for people. And I, I don't, I don't think outside of some of those indigenous led uh, innovations that are happening bottom up in communities, I, I don't think any policymaker at any senior order government really gets what those women were talking about yet. If they did, we would be doing things profoundly differently that wouldn't look like detention and, you know, pseudo concentration camps for unwell people, right? Like I, 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 and I call them that, and I know that's provocative because I, I do think that that is like the most reactive approach and, and interpretation to the individualized narrative of, of, of that person's struggle versus a collective societal, um, community oriented approach to saying, you know, that that person's well-being is relevant to me and I hope my well-being is relevant to that person. And if either of those have broken down and trust has been lost and community has been broken, you got to heal that at the same time if you have any hope of actually reinvigorating that individual's participation in society. Um, and oh, by the way, the business case for that's phenomenal because what we're doing right now, and uh, um, it was a... Um, uh, Dr. Andrew Boozeri's uh, uh, emergency doc in Toronto was at a, on a panel at an FCM conference a little while ago. He had it's just mind-blowing stat. He's, and I've heard versions of the stat before, but this was the clearest I've ever put it. He said, well, right now how we're doing it is it costs $30,000 a month, and that's a low-ball number, I think. It's $30,000 a month to meet someone who's struggling to meet their needs in a hospital. $10,000 a month if they're in jail because we haven't met their needs very well. $7,000 a month if they're in a shelter for the short term, but supportive housing with wraparound services focused in a culturally safe way uh, on their healing is $3,000 a month. So why are we, you know, why is our healthcare system groaning at the seams? This is a major contributing factor for it. Um, you know, why is there pressure on our correction system, pressure on police? Well, because we're dealing with it in this reactive way. And we, the answer is there. The evidence is there. It's a, it's, a, it's a hearts and minds thing that needs to shift at this point on this yeah. larger theme we've been talking about. But, but I still, I, 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 I'll put it this way in terms of hope. Um, I saw Al Gore give a speech to a bunch of mayors in 2018 uh, at a conference in, in, um, in San Francisco. And it was a pretty dark time in climate policy, particularly in the United States. But he said, if you think about 
all great social change in human history. It happened slower than anyone who was paying attention could possibly stand it until all of a sudden it moved faster than anyone could have imagined possible. And he, his argument in that case was that you know, climate action on decarbonization was beginning to accelerate and would continue to accelerate in a way that Donald Trump or anybody else could never stop. And I think he's right. And I think the progress between 2018 and today shows that in, in a lot of quarters. I think hearts and minds on how we're going to get through these challenges as our cities are groaning under the strain of inequality and injustice and ill health you know, and and shifting to wellness. Like, I have to believe we're going to get to that. We're just not there yet. It would be a mistake for us to not talk about impoverty. I'm doing with you here. Uh, I was just thinking that outside of my family, you probably had the greatest effect on my career path of anybody else I can think of. So I was an economist. Sorry? Yeah, I I was an economist at the city of Edmonton and you made an inquiry. And I wrote the report and the report said, yes, there's something to be concerned. The report that got to council said, there's nothing to be concerned. Don't look over here. And I quit the city. Like that was, that was the impetus for me leaving the city and going to EMCN. And uh, when I, my, I expired at EMCN, which was like, my plan was to leave at exactly eight years, which is what I did. Uh, This was the job. And I wouldn't have had this job if not for a mayoral task force that you initiated and so I think the big question for me having you here is like, what were you thinking? Like, why, why did you do it? Yeah. What, was, what were you thinking? Yeah. Well, you're welcome slash I'm sorry. I, I wasn't trying to like alter the course of anyone's life. It's worked out. I mean, you're I'm, doing, I'm happy you're doing incredibly important work now with the team at End Poverty Edmonton and, and your other duties and the work that you led at, uh, at EMCN. Um, so I, I'm touched by that. I, you've never told me that. So I'm, I'm having a moment to, uh, to, uh, to integrate that. But I mean, what was I thinking was when I started asking questions about, um, about poverty amelioration about 10 years ago is, is two things. One, you know, it was boom times in Alberta again. And I thought people are still being left behind. This makes no sense. We're at the time, you know, because Alberta goes through this ebb and flow of we either were like, we're the richest people and everything's awesome. And we did all this for ourselves. And it's not because there's, you know, 500 million years of sunlight compressed underground and fossil fuels that, you know, I mean, that's cool. Then we we're very smart about how to get after it and have been very enterprising about it. But like we hit the jackpot locationally. We just, you know, we're like the trust fund kid that thinks we made the money ourselves, right? Um, A lot of the times. And then when the money dries up, we're looking for everybody to blame but ourselves that we can't pay our bills, right? So Alberta goes through this cycle and, but we were in one of the upswings of that where like anything's possible and we can take on great things, right? And, and, And so I was like, you know, maybe this could be a place where, because I thought there were a bunch of pre-existing conditions that moved us closer to being the kind of place that could eliminate deep inequality and poverty. Because at that time, we had made tremendous progress towards our goal of ending homelessness. We were on a trajectory um, to achieve that as part of the 10-year plan, uh, the then 10-year plan to end homelessness. So I thought, so the second reason, besides the sort of political and zeitgeist of the moment, um, was that I saw the biggest barrier to achieving our goal of ending homelessness um, was the supply of new people becoming homeless because of inequality and poverty. And that if we could shave that off as well through public policy interventions that, um, that made it more likely for people to be resilient uh, and, and not wind up homeless, but wind up, you know, in the, in the hands of community to, to, to move from housing they were losing right into housing that was more suitable and supportive to equip um, women particularly and single parent families headed by those women to be able to re-enter the workforce faster through childcare um, uh, to uh, to be able to address um, you know income for low income folks in a different way and a whole bunch of these things are by the way not things that the city could do I mean only the transit stuff and parts of the housing were really aspects of civic jurisdiction. So I took a lot of heat because people were just like, well, this is not even our jurisdiction. But I was operating without having read Robert Putnam's latest book on the premise that if not here, where are we going to have the conversation about what it would look like to end poverty in a 
mid-sized North American city, um, at large for Canadian standards, but mid-sized, mid-sized Canadian city. And, um, and I, and what I saw and I still see were the seeds of it. Right. And if you think about what's happened, there were, I think, five pillars of recommendations. And I think there's been substantial movement on three of them, if not four of them, since the, since the report came out. I mean, there is a national housing strategy now. It needs to go further. But there's massive reentry of the federal government into the housing space, huge movement from the city, uh, you know, 500 units of supportive housing built through, through um, the rapid housing initiative. So there's a pretty big movement on housing, not enough yet. Um, income supports are way up with the the child benefit. Child care's um, been um, massively changed with the federal government's intervention into affordable child care. Though we could debate Alberta's choices around how to implement it. Um, but at le- again, like not perfect, but like we're in a very very different place than where we were, bef- uh, you know, ten years ago when I was asking these questions. But in but it, particularly in Edmonton, I saw a will in this community. To, to look out for each other. And that's just in the culture of this place and lots of different theories as to why that is. But I just, I made an assumption and I think it's true about this community because I actually think it's true about all communities, but I, I, I felt it particularly strongly in Edmonton. The whole time I was, was in office and before and since was that like, this was a community that really didn't want to leave people behind. It was uncomfortable about the idea of people being in hardship and that if it meant that we had to do some things differently to make sure that people weren't going to be out in the cold, mm-hmm. that people would have decent employment. And if they couldn't work for reasons of health, that they wouldn't be sort of pushed off to the side or, or left out in the cold again, right? And I just, I, so I saw in Edmontonians what I think is, you know, I've come to the view, the hopeful view that is actually the instinct of humans. There's all these barriers right now and all these counter narratives to what we want to do, which is look out for each other, right? So I had that hope then. I still have that hope now. And again, as hard as it's been and as as worse off as folks in the deepest need are right now because of inflation, because of the impacts of the pandemic, because um, climate change hits lowest income folks the most acutely, like the disasters hit them the, the most heat uh, is the most lethal because housing is least likely to be cooled and neighborhoods, lower income neighborhoods have less trees, less shade, less access to cooling uh, public spaces. So, I mean, all of those inequalities are still there and some of them are getting worse. But think about the interventions that have happened. And if we nudged any of those, and I do know that we nudged the housing work uh, federally sizably. Like, I mean, I was in the room when the rapid housing initiative came together with the federal government. And I was, I was on a call, I mean, virtually in the room or a lot of virtual calls. And I mean, I was on the line when the federal government committed, they said, okay, we're going to commit to this goal of ending chronic homelessness in this country. And it's really hard to do, but it's doable. It is. You just got to kind of get over the narratives that say some people don't deserve it or it's too hard or we're incapable, right? By reason of structure or some other limits. It's like, I'd love to, and you, you heard a little bit of this in the last mayor's race. Like, well, I'd, I'd love, of course, in principle to, to end homelessness, but you know, that's not really our responsibility or, or, you know, it's really hard or there's always some people who, who will want to be homeless. And that, that <clears throat> boils my blood. Because it's given up on what I think is that human instinct to look out for each other, right? That most of us share most of the time under ideal conditions. We're just not in ideal conditions right now, societally. Can I can I point out too that your city council, I can't remember the exact dollar figure. You might, you're better at that than me. But we set aside money and and determined that we would build five supportive housing yep. facilities, and that we would then go to the communities, push pretty hard and say, everybody has a role here. Well, we, we did several things. Like we, a lot of other cities that said, oh, well, we can't deploy these because there's too much community resistance. What we did is we said, we had kind of a pact with every member of council. We said, one, we agree that over-concentrating these all in lower income communities who've traditionally had an abundance of this housing is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So it ha- so if you agree with that premise, then it follows that if you're going to build more, you should put it in other neighborhoods. And so the really the, I don't want to call it a, 
a deal because it was a consensus, a true consensus mm -hmm. in a benevolent sense, not in a Machiavellian sense, was like, okay, so we all agree then that they're going to go in every other, you know, every other ward or in parts of your ward centrally that haven't traditionally had this. So we're going to have to spread it out to deal with the over-concentration problem. And that's going to mean that every one of, uh, every one of the members of council is going to face some opposition in their community. And there's two ways to respond to that. There's what I saw many city councillors without naming names over the years do, which is say like, of course I support this, but I have to vote against it just to, you know, <laughs> basically appease the, the, the local community folks. But almost every, almost everyone on our council stood firm and supported and championed and defended at the expenditure of political capital, um, knowing they had the backing of members of council to do the same when the time came to, to, to build uh, um, those supportive housing units and altogether about uh, five, over 5,000 units of supportive, uh, of, 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 uh, of affordable housing, including right. those supportive housing units. Uh, so yeah, we, we made some huge commitments. We had a very strong consensus on that and that held together almost all of the time with our council. And, and it turns out that's, that's rare. So, so we should be proud of, uh, of, of the work of those councils, the cohesion of those councils on those issues. And we did the same thing on infill and, and, and this is not to make an urban planning argument, but, but from a housing supply, housing economics argument, we did it on infill around lot splitting, ending single family home, uh, or, you know, exclusionary zoning essentially to, 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 to sterilize land into single family only, which is a kind of virtual economic gated community approach like we did away with all of that and we liberalized heavily the ability to 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 build accessory dwelling units aka basement suites garden suites garage suites to subdivide land to and to just inject a lot more supply and all these other cities people are like oh you know these councils don't want to do it and there's all this nimby resistance there how did you do it in edmonton i'm like i don't know, we just did because it was the right thing to do and housing is so much more affordable here because of it than all of those other cities that have been dragging it so so we just, I don't know, we had, we did have a remarkable consensus over those eight years to do things. So I, you touched on it subtly uh, and you gave a really good example. Why can Edmonton end poverty? Like, why is it going to be us and not Vancouver or Winnipeg or Toronto or definitely not Calgary? And Scott, I want you to answer that one too. Mm. Like, why is it going to be us? I'll give you a minute, Don. You know, I think we already have pretty good momentum here. And, and some of the things that Don talked about. You know, the key is, I think, is leading um, a, as adults to adults and giving the, giving the constituents really good information. We had, we had um, public hearings on, on, on affordable housing where there would be some people would turn up to oppose it, but it was a handful. And I think that's the other thing you have to recognize as as elected officials, is we're going to get them all. But this city, it, I think, is, uh, you know, as Don says, is remarkably open to creating equity, opportunity, community health. And, and, and I, I don't know, I, I have heard too many stories, and I was a journalist for too long, hearing stories, people visiting here, for example, or, or professors moving here, for example, and being blown away, maybe not by the geography or the climate, by the people. Yeah, I, I think that's it. I mean, it's it's something in the spirit of the place. It's an intangible, um, and, and I think, you know, on the data, uh, OECD looked at some years ago, so this, I, I don't, I haven't seen recent indicators on this and I'd be curious if it's moved, but, but some years ago they did a look at, you know, cities across the OECD countries and looked at income inequality in them. And the measure for that is something called the Gini coefficient, which just measures how, how much disparity there is in income. And Edmonton was at the top, and this is a very obscure study, it's not widely cited, but Edmonton was at the top of the list of all the cities in the OECD group, which is like 30 different advanced countries, um, developed countries, um, as having the least economic inequality. Mm. 
And so when we talked about this place as a blue collar place or in the um, Make Something Edmonton um, kind of dialogue some years ago, we talked to one of the, one of the notions that emerged was that this place doesn't really have an aristocracy. Like there's very wealthy people here, but they're pretty quiet about it. <laughs> and their philanthropy is often anonymous and extremely generous. You know, we're in the Community Foundation basement recording this podcast and this exists because of very very generous leadership from the pools and the stollaries and then thousands of other so-called blue jean millionaires who decided to put their money back into the community mm -hmm. right but not ask for their name to be on anything in the process and instead of having their own foundation with their name on it doing granting as a legacy thing they decided to pool it together and there's something very like prairie, wheat pool, barn raising, no ego, let's do the right thing about that. And I think that, you know, between some massive number of people here being from Saskatchewan <laughs> over the years, you know, one or two generations removed and a very large indigenous community uh, that brings, you know, traditional knowledge of um, working together in, in community um, and, and those amazing stories of how, you know, Ukrainian farmers who arrived here with nothing got through the winters with, um, the support and partnership and trade with indigenous people, you know, around here. Um, you know, people just, I think people have been looking out for each other here for thousands of years, you know, you, you, you for before, before Europeans arrived here, I mean, how else would you survive here? Necessity, yeah. without without looking out for each other. So, I mean, I think that's we think about this as a very new place, but it's 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 um, you know thirteen thousand years at least of evidence in the archaeological record, and it's been even colder than it is now here for a lot of that time. And people were here because it was a special intersection of what we now call Calgary Trail and now call St. Albert Trail and now call Fort Road. Like there are indigenous trails that are thousands of years old connected to the Dene peoples and Inuit peoples of the north and all the way down to the Navajo in the south. And that's the same language, by the way. They, they came and went through here because this was an easy place to cross the river. And, um, and the Cree peoples and the Blackfoot peoples and more recently the Nakota Sioux peoples and the Soto uh, and then the Métis culture. This is one of the great birthplaces of that. And then in the 1800s, at one point, this was the busiest commercial center when the fur trade was booming in the early 1800s, the busiest commercial center on this side of the continent. I mean, something special is going on here, right? And it's not like it's 100 years old and it's not like it's limited to Wayne Gretzky and it's not like, or that it's about the tornado or anyone's slogan. Like there's something in the water here, I guess. But I don't think that's that different than human beings anywhere else. Like the resilience of of people in Ukraine to the to the fight that they're having right now. The 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 resilience of people in disaster after disaster getting worse in climate change. Like the the awful stories we see are the people being devastated. The heartwarming things are how people get through those crises together. Like that's the human story. I just think it's particularly richly expressed here for a variety of historical and cultural and regulatory reasons in this city. And so that's not a very precise answer. Um, but, but again, on, on back to the data, the point that this was a place that actually was very inclusive and, and whose wealthy people gave back and whose struggling people were brought in through the generosity over years of many, many charity initiatives and many government interventions that had broad public support, like low-income bus pass, low-income rec passes, making the library free, all these other things that are fundamentally inclusion exercises and aren't that hard to do because that's who we want to be as a community. I mean, I, I, think, that, I think that's a human instinct. I just think it's richly expressed here in Edmonton. That's, that's why we're going to do it. Yeah. It's going to take some time. Do you know the Gini coefficient correlates really closely with innovation? The lower your Gini score, the higher your innovation as a community? So like there's a, there's a good reason why you'd want to have that, that sort of uh, low Gini score from an, like a purely economic wealth, wealth creation point I of view. I did not know that. Yeah. I, I also have some theories too. Like I think, I think the people are a big part of the, the ingredient. I, I do think like we're, 
we're a petri dish too. Like we're sort of removed. We're, we're pretty far north. Yeah. We're really close to the oil sands. Like we've had multiple evac fire evacuations. So like our our sort of closeness to environmental issues, I think, is unusually high. Mm. I think it's going to be community that first realizes that my success is tied to yours and my failure is tied to yours. Like what you were saying earlier about like that that interconnected. It's the community that recognizes that that if we end poverty, we're going to hold on to more young people. They're not going to leave for your Vancouver's and your Toronto's because they see their values reflected in their community. I think we we're just uniquely positioned to do it. And if we do it, I think others will recognize it's possible. The I always thought like if there's somebody who could take a shot, it would be you to do this, to do my job. But since you were working, uh, I, I thought I would got to be on the, the list. And so I took it uh, thinking, yeah, we've got the ingredients to do this in Edmonton. Um, when I started to like drink my own Kool-Aid was when people started saying like, oh, I heard you got that job. Yeah, you, you're totally going to end poverty. And it wasn't like laughable. It was like, oh yeah, for sure. That's great. You know, Ben Henderson was like, oh yeah, totally. You're going to go end poverty now. Like it's, it's great. I'll, uh, when I retire, I'll be the co-chair. Like it was, people were just saying like, this is doable here. And I don't think that it exists in, in very many communities. So like fighting the battle of making this a believable possibility. We're, we're past that. And I don't know there's a lot of places that can say yeah. that. But yeah, it's a beautiful answer. Well, and, and what's the alternative, right? This was something Bishop Jane Alexander, the co-chair of the, of the task force, used to always sort of remind us. And, and she would remind us of two things. She said, well, you know, uh, her, her folks have been working to end poverty for about 2,000 years since a certain somebody said this would be a good thing to do, uh, namely Jesus, right? Like, so it's not, and, and then it's, it's not like across all faith expressions that you find richly um, and diversely in our community that there isn't a commitment to your fellow human being and not just the people of your same faith, but to all humans, right? Like, so that instinct is there and whether it comes through ideology or philosophy or faith or or culture or philanthropy or whatever kind of whatever way it's expressed like it it is pretty widely held right but but the other things she would remind us because that was always a sort of hopeful infusion of like you know just remember that's that's kind of an objective of all the churches is to end poverty yeah. right so uh, uh it's, it's in it's in the operating system um but she also said you know the alternative is actually unconscionable and unjustifiable like, like if you actually are challenged for a second to say, are you okay with there always being poverty? Can you live with that? Like, is that acceptable to you? If you really stop and think about it for reasons of enlightened self-interest or for reasons of justice and fairness or for very practical reasons of how expensive reacting to poverty is, how bad it is for productivity and workforce engagement and economic outputs, like whatever the lenses that you put on it, it's actually an an impossible thing to justify, you know. No one would run on, oh, let's make poverty worse. So, you know, by by inversion, of course our objective should be to reduce inequality until there isn't poverty. It doesn't mean there isn't going to be in inequality over time. People could debate that, but like let's put a floor under what's from a dignity perspective, allowable on our terms and our values in this community. And I think we're already there. Like, I think that consensus is there. It's now like the sticky work of policy change and resource distribution and program and implementation, right? But like, again, look at the movement over the last 10 years in housing policy and income support policy and childcare policy. There's been some movement around mental health and addictions. Um, there's been a ton of movement around reconciliation, not nearly enough, not nearly enough. Um, uh, and anti-racism and and those sources of inequality uh, uh, and alienation in in this community and others, but yeah, I mean, like, are we moving in the right direction? Absolutely, absolutely. Great. We we should wrap on that. But you want to? No, I was just gonna thank you. Yeah, that was. We could do this for another five hours. From my perspective, like, but shouldn't it only uh, take three questions? Yeah, yeah. Do another five hours if you want. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's the that, that's something I don't miss is the five minute time limits and uh, <laughs> speeches at City Hall. Ah, uh, that, that was great. Thank you very yeah, much. We will, and we might have you again, especially if and if you do anything that is. Let us just keep. Oh, up stay today. tuned. There's something else I can't say about yet, but that that pulls a lot of these themes together. So yeah, okay. there's, there'll always be more to talk about. And I do want to say that uh, that Scott, I mean, you've been a dear friend for many years, but. 
your your contribution on all of these issues was steadfast and unwavering in the years that we worked together on council and before Thanks. that as a columnist too but but I hope you can take some pride in the in the progress that we've made as a community because you were a, a, a key and unwavering ally in, in all of that work in the time we served together. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Yeah, it was... Uh, it's true. It was, uh, it was almost fun. <laughs> <laughs> we can laugh about it. Now. Yeah. <laughs>